Hey everyone, and welcome to the Flatlining Podcast from Fulcrum Strategies. I'm Matthew Hindley from Flatlining.net, and with me, as he has been, is the President and CEO of Fulcrum Strategies and Economist, Ron Howergan. Ron, welcome back to the Flatlining Podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here, as always. Today, we are discussing two news items that came across my desk. Next up that I want to talk about, Ron, is um, a report that came out in Becker's Hospital Review several weeks ago about the amount of physicians that died during the pandemic. And, and they're reporting that hundreds more died than what was previously um, calculated or expected. And it's raising questions to another overall problem, which is, is are we in a physician shortage? And I, I know we've talked about this before, and I know you've talked about this at different conferences before, but... What are we looking at with the number of physicians as we go into the next 10 or 20 years? Um, we definitely are facing a um, physician shortage. Um, we're facing a physician shortage, especially after COVID, and for a lot of reasons why we're facing some shortages in other areas. Um, so when you think about what happened with COVID, um, one of the things is there were a lot of physicians who were fairly close to retirement age, sort of things got shut down and they said, hey, maybe now's a good time to, you know, to um, just hang them up. So we had a bunch of people retire. Similar things happened with airline pilots. Mm -hmm. You know, they couldn't fly. So, hey, I'm close. I'll just go ahead and do it. Um, we had this issue of, you know, physicians dying of COVID more than what right. we would lose, you know, normally every year. Um and so we've had a number of things happen in the physician world that have heightened this issue of, of physician shortage. And we're starting to see it. We're starting to see it pretty dramatically in some areas. You know, anecdotally, we're hearing about, you know, um, ORs at rural hospitals that have to shut down because they can't get an anesthesiologist to, mm -hmm. to take the case. We're starting to see some backlogs for patient appointments and stuff like that. And so it's a significant issue. And part of it, the reason why it's a significant issue is because you just can't make new ones. You know, it's not right. like you can say, hey, we need, you know, and I'm, 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 I'm pick out, we need more truck drivers and you can go to a six month course and get your CDL license. No, it's 10 to 14 years mm -hmm. to train a new doc. Um, so this is not a shortage that's going to get fixed anytime soon. And, and as we've talked about before, we're dealing with a lot of the labor issues we're dealing with in the United States right now, in part because we lost about a million people during the pandemic and that's a million people. Uh, not all of them were out of the workforce, but a significant portion were taken out of the workforce because of that. Um, and that's, what's causing some of the economic problems that we're having now, particularly with labor looking at it right now. Are we looking at the similar economic problems within the healthcare world because we have lost so many physicians due to COVID well, right now? We'll say due to deaths from COVID we'll, we'll exclude some of the burnout for, for just a moment. Um, yes, we are. And we're seeing it, um, some of these issues, you know, in various, um, uh, subspecialties. So for example, I saw something the other day that, um, looked at the percentage of active physicians who are over the age of 55, which means they're, they're, you know, in that retirement range. And that means they've got less you know, flexibility, if you will, for losing people mm -hmm. um, or having a shortage. Pulmonary disease, okay, which is, I wouldn't have picked it, but I, and I don't know why this is the case, but pulmonary disease, 
over 80% of all the active physicians who practice pulmonary medicine are over the age of 55, over 80%. Hmm. How are we going to replace those? You know, and those are the ones who, because they're over the age of 55 and I haven't, they haven't broken down the COVID statistics, probably had a pretty significant issue with, you know, with fatalities um, Mm -hmm. around that. So it's, you know, there's some areas that are going to get really dicey here for a while. Let's add burnout into the mix because that's that caused a lot of oh, physicians, yeah. not just physicians, but you know, nurses, other hospital technicians as well, mm-hmm. to just decide to be done with healthcare during the pandemic. I don't know if there's necessarily a, a cure for for a quote unquote cure for burnout, but is there a way to perhaps make conditions a little bit more alleviate conditions better, especially for emergency room physicians? Because I think that's where we saw it uh, the most during COVID. Um, is there a way to help decrease the amount of what, what kind of ways can we decrease the amount of burnout that we're seeing uh, to keep physicians from quitting prematurely and thus kind of even more drastically expanding the shortage problem? Yeah, I think there's a there's a real then this should be a real concern about um, how we treat physicians in this country what we're doing to try to help them as a labor force. Um, and, and it applies to nurses and other caregivers as well. So I don't mean to, to, to be just about doctors. Um, to try to address things like burnout, to try to get um, more people excited about going into medicine. You know, what if this environment that we have um, makes it to where the best and brightest don't want to go into medicine anymore and we can't fill up our slots in medical schools? Um, I mean, if you think about and the solutions are, are you know, I think both a uh, income level, a lifestyle, a, an overall approach, um, you know, how we say thank you mm-hmm. um, to the caregivers who, who are there for us when we're at our worst. Um, I mean, you think about it, you know, COVID hit, we asked all these caregivers, whether they were in the ERs or not, to, boy, it's time for you to step up, and they did. Um, and sometimes they stepped up put themselves at risk, worked long, hard hours, dealing with all the stuff they dealt with, um, and lowered their income. You know, a lot of these doctors, you know, would, would have situations where, you know, they weren't making money and they were stepping up. So, and, and yeah, we all remember the scenes of the people applauding them as they, you know, left work and, and all that. And that was great. And then COVID goes away and we're like, oh, okay, we're back to normal. And what's the first thing we do as a government? We cut their pay with Medicare. Mm-hmm. We give them a Medicare cut across the board and tell them they're going to get another one next year. Boy, how do you feel really good about your job and how your company or how your country views you if that was the case? I mean, wouldn't that be a little bit like, you know, the the, the guys coming home from Desert Storm or World War II or whatever and going, you're our heroes. Thanks for protecting democracy. Now we're cutting all your pay. Mm-hmm. I mean, thanks right. a lot. Uh, so I think we've got to really look at you know, what we're doing and part of it's compensation, part of it's how much respect we have for them. I think it would go a long way if we could um, pass some, you know, uh, call it a physician's bill of rights on how insurance companies have to deal with them and what they can and can't do. Um, If Medicare would, oh, I don't know, keep up with inflation, that would be a helpful thing to do for them. So uh, it's not an easy solution, but boy, we better figure it out because, you know, having a Medicare for all card with free health care ain't going to be very mm-hmm. useful if there's nobody there to provide the care. Right. 
how do you do you think the big payers are looking at the physician shortage right now? Because obviously it's going to come back to hurt them too, because their networks are going to shrink. The the fewer physicians there are, just by default, um, if you're going to have fewer practices with fewer physicians, how do you think that they are looking at and possibly addressing the issue internally? I I don't think they are. Um, and, and maybe it's, they shouldn't, maybe it's not their problem. I don't think the big payers are looking, you know, that far down the road or thinking that's their issue to solve. I mean, you know, their Mm -hmm. customers are the employer groups and the members. And I think that's really who they, who they cater to. And, and, and again, maybe they should, maybe it isn't their problem, but I really don't see anything that's happening in the payer world to really address the physician burnout Mm -hmm. or the physician shortage issue to any large degree. One thing you mentioned airline pilots earlier, and there there certainly is a, a pilot shortage. You had a lot of people similar to healthcare that retired during the pandemic because they said, eh, "There's no point in continuing anymore." So some of the airlines are kind of working on different ways to um, get more pilots in. And for one example that I heard not too long ago was that Frontier Airlines was starting their own um, pilot school, and once you do their pilot school, you're automatically brought in to be a pilot for Frontier Airlines with guaranteed employment once you graduate. What's being done either at the university level, the academic level, or perhaps even at the hospital level to try and get some people more interested into going into healthcare as a as a viable, you know, as a viable career path for going in, into into school. Obviously without lessening or lowering the um the the requirements to be in medical school or the the graduation requirements to graduate medical school. So there there have been some isolated um examples of, uh, you know, trying to provide incentives for certain types of, of medical um, education. There, you know, there are definitely, there are some programs out there that'll pay for nursing college if you agree to do X, you know, work in this setting for so long. There are hospitals out there that will pay for your nursing college if you'll, you know, sign up and work for them for a while. There's been some examples of that with things like CRNAs. Um, mm-hmm. where anesthesia groups will say, hey, I'll pay off your student loan if you come and work here for five years. Um, there really haven't been a lot of those with physicians with the absence of, let's say, the military and some of that stuff, um, probably because it's just so damned expensive. Right. You know, how do you pay off two, $300,000 of, of education and training and get the person to work there? Um, and what happens when they say, well, I'm not going to work here and I'm going to just go file bankruptcy? You know, and you've just sunk that. So right. there's not a whole lot of work in that area when it comes to physicians. There's been a little bit elsewhere. Um, but it's something that, you know, we, we definitely need to think about. Right. And, and it's interesting, too, because as, as we talk about this, you know, some of the airlines have remained profitable um, even up until COVID. Of course, COVID kind of screwed everything up. But the mm-hmm. hospitals frequently are, are either operating at a loss or at a very narrow margin. Mm-hmm. Um and that's one reason why I asked about the payers because they are quite yeah. the opposite situation every year. They they have pretty fantastic oh, yeah. margins and their shareholders are doing well. Do you think that maybe there might be some sort of um, uh, like a federal legislation? You know, I'm not talking about student loans, but a federal legislation to as Bernie wants to reform the healthcare industry. That that's maybe what you do is you maybe tax the insurance companies at a different rate to pay for more tuition for for medical for medical doctors. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely a, you know, that would be an interesting creative solution. And, and one that I think, you know, however we do it, um, 
we need to be very careful about this and very and and, and very intentional about it because again, it's it, if we find ourselves in worse situation than we are now, you know, if if you take, you know, even if a quarter of those pulmonary disease physicians that are you know that are over the age of fifty five retired, now you got a really serious problem, and you know when you need a pulmonologist, it's not you know. It is life threatening. It is very serious. So, um, it's something that is going to take some creative solutions like that to try to fix both the, the, you know, the incentive to get into it, and then the work environment once they get there. One of the things that's in, you know, and it's amazing to me that more people don't sort of think about this. You know, we know that there are laws around how many hours a pilot can fly every month. Right. You know, because we don't want tired pilots, you know, at the who might fall asleep. Um, do you know what the law is around how many hours an anesthesiologist can work or an emergency medicine physician? Mm-mm. There aren't any. Mm. Well, I don't want a tired anesthesiologist or a tired ER doc, or, um, but, but we don't do that there. Um, but yet we do it with, you know, with, um, you know, with airline pilots and not to say we should take off the restrictions of the airline pilots. It just, it shows you that there's a similar, there should be a similar concern about if we're overworking um, physicians and not just anesthesiologists, ER docs. I mean, you know, primary care physicians can make a mistake and it can be just as deadly. Right. Um, but it's something we should, we should really think about because mm-hmm. this shortage is going to impact access and it's definitely going to impact quality. Well, this article, Hundreds More Physicians Died Than Expected Amid the Pandemic, uh, is from Becker's Hospital Review, and we'll have it linked in the show notes for this program at flatlining.net or wherever you're listening to this podcast. Ron, the second thing I wanted to talk about today is something that is currently going through the Indiana legislature, and it is being pitched as a way of breaking up hospital monopolies in that state. And according to one commentator, every market in the state of Indiana has one hospital system and it's got a monopoly there in that area. And one of the ways that they are in, in a number of them apparently are nonprofit institutions. One of the things the state's trying to do about that is to cap some of their reimbursement. Um, and I wanted to talk to you a little bit about this, uh, of, of, you know, whether or not restricting monopolies in this way is a good idea and whether or not this could even be applied to the payer side. Cause as we've discussed before, there are hundreds of markets across the U S where it is essentially a monopoly on one particular uh, payer in that area. So one of the things that's happening right now in this piece of legislation is they want to cap uh, nonprofit hospitals whose charges are over 260% of Medicare. I think, one, I think that's a pretty random number, and I think that when you're talking about capping charges, you're not. it's not the same thing as capping... Um, what they're earning, but they're saying that if you charge more than 260% of Medicare, you're going to get penalized by the Department of Insurance. Mm-hmm. So there's a, a bunch of sort of stuff going on with this. And, and one of the things we need to think about when you think about hospitals and monopolies is there are times when monopolies are good. Okay. okay. And there's a perfect example, and you're going to be very familiar with this locale, of where there's hospital competition when it's actually bad. Mm-hmm. Okay, there was a great piece done, it was a few years ago, about two hospitals in, you know, in my hometown, um, Kalamazoo, Michigan. Mm-hmm. And there are two hospitals there, and the two hospitals compete. Okay, and what it's created is a duplication of services. One hospital got an, a, a helicopter, an ambulance helicopter, the other one had to have it. 
one hospital has a NICU, the other one has to have a NICU. Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's a market that isn't big enough to support two helicopters, for no. example. But this competition duplicates services. It becomes inefficient. It actually drives up cost. There's a reason why we only have one power company and why mm-hmm. that's a known and existing monopoly. Because we don't want to have all, all these different companies having all their different power lines running around. It's inefficient when I have one, one, uh, one power company. So... I'm an economist. I don't like monopolies from the from what they tend to do, but there are times, and even economists will say, where monopolies are the right thing to do because having competition actually could increase cost and lower service. Now, what typically happens, and like what happens with the power companies, is when you have a monopoly, you rate regulate it, you know, because you understand that without rate regulation, electricity would be a lot more expensive, and you make them apply to some external entity for price increases and justify them, et cetera. Other than in the state of Maryland, we don't have that Mm -hmm. um, in this country. So I'm not a big fan of trying to make, you know, break up hospital monopolies per se, because there are a lot, especially in rural Indiana, there's a lot of places where you really can't have competition, right? not big enough to support it. But I do think that where there is a monopoly in, in, areas um, where there's a lack of competition, there needs to be some form of rate regulation. I don't think it's capping charges at 260, because you're right, charges have nothing to do with, you know, with what actually gets paid under contractual mm-hmm. arrangements. Um, unless and, unless if you know, the hospitals, on, be, is, is their contracts at a percentage of billed charges um, rather than Medicare, right. where the physician services might be a percentage of Medicare. Yeah. Yeah, and you look at like Maryland, for example, Maryland hospitals can't negotiate discounts, mm-hmm. you know, with carriers, but they're also rate regulated. So it's a way to say, well, your charge is your charge to everybody and you're not able to discount it. And we're going to regulate what that charge is mm-hmm. to make sure it's not too much. Okay, well, then that works. You know, that's true sort of rate regulation. The other thing I probably have with this whole idea of penalizing hospitals who charges are over 260, what if the penalty penalty is less than what the profit would be for having excessive charges? Right. You know, it's sort of like the, you know, the baseball system where they've got the, the salary tax and the New York Yankees pay it every year because, okay, we can, we still make money, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so it's really not that much of a deterrent. And, and to your point about uh, the, the two hospitals in Kalamazoo, it's interesting to note that one of them is sort of a local-ish kind of chain the other one is an ascension hospital which of course is a big one that goes across the united states they've got locations all over the place um what also interests me about this particular issue in indiana is that it targets specifically non-profit hospitals and not for-profit institutions which i think is odd um i would argue that maybe there's some sort of discriminatory practices there with regards to commerce but i i'm not a lawyer and i don't i don't really know do you know if there would be a reason why they would target nonprofit hospitals specifically over for? And I do know a number of them are, are, are Christian institutions. Or I, I'm almost positive Advent Health is big in Indiana as well. Um, but I'm just curious what the reasoning might be behind that. Well, I think I think there's, um, and it may be intentional because it's you know it's easy to sort of sell to the public, or maybe they just don't understand that a nonprofit status does not mean that you're incredibly altruistic. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, early in my career, I worked for a nonprofit um, HMO, Kaiser Permanente, nonprofit. Right. Well, I remember one year we had $1 billion of profit on 12, no, not profit, retained earnings. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. And I can remember talking to somebody at corporate and saying, well, how can we make profit? And he said, oh, we don't make profit. We retain earnings. I said, okay, right. well, I don't get it. I thought we were nonprofit. And he goes, the only difference between us and a for-profit company is we keep that money and the for-profit company gives it to their shareholders in the form of dividends. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot, and I've worked for a, another nonprofit, Blue Cross plan. There are a lot of nonprofit companies that still make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. you know, And that's what probably would say in these hospitals do. That's not the issue. It's what they do with the money. Right. So this idea of attacking just the nonprofits, um, it sounds good because it's like, well, they're nonprofit. They shouldn't make any money. Well, mm-hmm. there are a lot of nonprofit companies that make a lot of money. Oh, yeah. They just keep it. Uh, one of the other interesting things this bill does is that it says that hospitals may not employ any physician to provide medical services for radiology, anesthesiology, pathology, or emergency medicine, except that a hospital may employ a physician to provide emergency services if the physician also provides other medical services. What's the deal with that? Well, one of the things we know, and, and I this feels to me like an insurance company was behind this, you know, try to press the lobbying buttons. Okay. Mm-hmm. The insurance companies, especially now with the No Surprises Act, it's a way for them to get bring down the cost of radiology, anesthesiology, pathology, emergency medicine. Okay. And the insurance companies have been angry at these groups because they've had a monopoly. You know, it's the only one radiology group at the hospital, only one anesthesia group. Right. Um, well, some of the counter to that is some of these groups have then sold or become employees of the hospital and then they get hidden under the hospital contract and so the insurance company goes darn it now they can charge more than they should again so they Mm -hmm. want them to be independent so that they can pick them off so it feels like an insurance company said hey you should make this illegal too um now there's been a lot of studies that show that when hospitals employ physicians usually costs go up now making it illegal for hospitals to employ physicians also has some negative side effects there are some rural hospitals. There are some hospitals that employ certain physicians, certain specialties, because without it, nobody would be attracted to that location or to that service. And they do it to provide a full range of services. So it's not always bad um, to employ physicians. But mm-hmm. definitely when you get into the employment of radiology, anesthesiology, path, and ER, that's you know to try to keep them from increasing the cost by being hospital employees. One of the big conglomerates is Indiana University, Um, and as you and I both know, because we've uh, had clients in the state of Indiana before, they also have their own health plan, which is pretty big in the state of Indiana. What what kind of laws do states generally have, or does the federal government have, about how a hospital, which also has a health plan, can negotiate with itself and determine prices? And is that possibly at play here in this particular house bill well one of the things to understand is first of all insurance companies are exempted from most antitrust violations through, through mm-hmm. regulation which is really interesting that insurance companies and, and they they can be an issue with you know with monopolies etc are exempted from a lot of that stuff which is really strange um the other thing is there's not a great deal of regulatory scrutiny about these hospitals that also own an insurance company and how they sort of, um, you know, negotiate amongst themselves, or does that give them some sort of unfair competitive advantage? Mm-hmm. Um, for a long time, I worked in the state of Utah for Cigna. Well, you know, 
the largest hospital system in the state at the time had more than half of all the hospital beds in the state, mm-hmm. also owned the largest insurance company and owned a number of doctors. We'll talk about a, you know, a, a monopoly, right. you know, where vertical your hospital, your insurance really. company and your doctor. Yeah, yeah, it's vertical integration, but it's also, you know, to some degree you wonder, well, is that increasing cost? Um, so, um, yeah, this, this whole idea of hospitals owning doctors and an insurance company um, gets a little dicey and a little gray. Now, the other side would argue that, that well, if they were paying themselves too much, um, then their own insurance company would have premiums that were too high and they wouldn't be able to sell it, that the free market will take care of all of that. One physician uh, writing in a, in a local paper called The Daily Journal uh, was talking about how much he, he liked this particular her, bill here. And one of the things he points out that the legislation would also do is um, prohibit contracts that force p- physicians to steer patients to in-network clinics. That sounds like a, an, a, an attack on really the way HMOs work and, and many other plans work. Yeah, and, and this is one where... Um, there are laws around hospitals not being able to buy referrals. Um, we talked about Rick Scott earlier. There was HCA when he was there got in trouble because they, for a while, they were franchising their hospitals, mm-hmm. which meant they would sort of sell shares of their hospital to the local doctors, which technically meant that if the doctor sent more business to the hospital, the hospital had more profit, they would get more dividends. Mm-hmm. And that became illegal. Yeah. Because you can't buy referrals. So even, for example, if you're a hospital and you own a doctor, you can't force them to use, you know, for example, to send all their MRIs to your hospital. It's buying referrals. So, But this in-network versus out-of-network, that's usually an insurance thing. And so what I didn't understand when he was the physician was talking about, well, they couldn't force me to go in-network. First of all, nobody forces you to go in-network. Right. But the patient's benefits are different. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, as a as a patient, I can choose to say, well, I don't want to go to that hospital for that MRI. I'm going to go over here. And if it's not in my network, I just have to pay the, you know, the out of network benefit differential. So it felt to me like that there was something other than what the physician was talking about that was really behind it, you know? Right. Well, and then there's some other, he's got some other comments in here about um, how people in, in Indianapolis or people in Indiana rather are paying 50% more than procedures for procedures than other average Americans. And then he talked about the price cap a little bit. Um, and then he also pointed out that they would add a tax incentive for new healthcare providers uh, and ban the practice of hospital systems dictating medical care guidelines to their physicians. Well, if the physician is employed by the hospital, I would say that it's within the hospital's right to say what kind of guidelines they have. Granted, as long as it doesn't you know, inhibit the, uh, the ability to provide their opinion, just like the insurance company contracts don't prohibit a physician to provide their their medical opinion on a particular procedure regardless of its if it's covered or not right exactly um yeah and there, i mean like i said there's a whole lot of stuff going on there that i'm not sure either is fully understood or that people are being truly uh, transparent about what their right you know what their real desire is um and, and anytime you compare what somebody pays in one market versus another, it's it's always easy to say, well, you know, I looked at, you know, an MRI in Indianapolis and compared to Tulsa, Oklahoma, right. you know, it, it's mm-hmm. X dollars more. And so, but you can 
find that with housing. You know, you can find that mm -hmm. with a lot of things where, you know, the cost of something in one market is different than in another market. Um, that in and of itself isn't necessarily a problem. Well, this bill, uh, House Bill number 1004, it was introduced earlier this year in the Indiana State Legislature. As far as I'm aware, it has not gotten past uh, the, the committee, but it was introduced into one of their committees on public health. Uh, we'll keep following it for you, and if you want to read the bill, we'll have it in the show notes for this program. We'll also have the opinion piece from a doctor in Johnson, excuse me, in Franklin, Indiana, which is in Johnston County there. And we want to hear from you. If you have an opinion on this particular bill, if you're in the state of Indiana, let us know what you think. Send us an email, flatlining at substack.com. You can tweet me or Ron, or you can uh, subscribe to this program, put a comment at the uh, place where you can find it at flatlining.net. Ron, that's about all the time we have for the program today. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast again. No problem. Thank you, sir. The Flatlining Podcast is a production of flatlining.net and Fulcrum Strategies. Copyright 2023, all rights reserved. Be sure to subscribe to the Flatlining Podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget you can engage with Ron and myself and other listeners of this program in our chat, available exclusively on the free Substack app. For Ron Howergan, I'm Matthew Handley. Have a good week. <laughs>